Well, good morning and welcome. We are so glad that you're here, uh, that we might worship Christ together. Uh, he calls us to worship him, to give him all praise and glory and honor. And not only does he command us to do so, but he's worthy of it. That he, among all of creation, is worthy of our worship and praise. A couple of things that I want to make sure that you're aware of. Uh, First is that we're having a, a food drive here uh, on Saturday, November 4th. So I think that's two weeks from now, right? Two weeks from yesterday. Um, and so we've done this a number of different times before. Uh, it, it is a whole lot of fun. Uh, one is, I don't know if, if you've had this experience of, of watching generosity uh, and seeing people just giving and caring for others and and it's it's really a wonderful thing but also the the people here that that are going to be a part of that that you could join and be a part of just to to have have fun seeing that all go on but it's something also that we found um, is a great way of reaching out to our neighbors particularly those who don't know Christ and so you think well you know I thought this is something that we're doing to feed the community well it is but, but all throughout Scripture, God has actually used pagan people, people who have no idea of who he is or even care about who he is, that he is used to bless other people. And, and often in that, they, they see, hey, this isn't just a church that's, that's telling the truth, but who's living the truth. And that can be very, very winsome. In, in communicating the wonder and love of Christ. So let me encourage you to, to come and be a part of this, to, to bring food. I'll, I'll never forget one time we went and did a, a food drive, uh, and it was different than I had ever done it. We, we actually went door to door asking people for food. And, and there was this one particular area that we were going to, and it was fascinating to me because it was one of those, you know, Railroad tracks ran through, and on one side it was all McMansions. You know, they were all, you know, million-dollar homes. And on the other side of the track was a, a, a trailer park and kind of uh, subsidized housing. And so, you know, in my foolishness, I'm thinking, wow, the McMansions, we're going to get a lot of food, right? And, and they were kind, and they were, you know, gave us some, some food. Uh, but when we went to some of the places on the other side of the track, I remember this one woman in particular who had heard that we were coming for food, and, and so she already had a bag packed, over, overflowing, you know, kind of grocery bag full of, of groceries. But when we came and she saw us, she was giving us that, and then she said, but wait a minute, I've got some more in my pantry. And she was just grabbing stuff out of her pantry. And I, I stopped her and said, now, why, if you don't mind me asking, why are you so excited about giving food to the, this food drive? She said, oh, that's easy. I said, what is it? She says, I've been hungry. I've been really hungry and not had any food. I know what that's like. 
And there's a, there's a spiritual corollary as well. Sometimes we're not very concerned about our neighbors who don't know Jesus because we've forgotten what it was like when we didn't know him. And so God calls us to feed the hungry in his name and to tell them of the wonders of Christ. And so let me encourage you to join the community outreach team in this food drive two weeks from yesterday. The other thing I just wanted to bring your attention to, this is a, an article that ran in the, the Vermont, Vermont Standard just a um, few weeks back on the history. This is our 250th year as, as a gathered church, and so I wanted to thank Preston. He did a, a great job. Uh, it was written by um, uh, Tom Ayers, but uh, Preston did a lot in helping him uh, with bringing these things all together. And uh, just a wonderful testimony to the community, again, of, of we're not here just as a historic church, but as a church that God has sustained and that we want to tell others about Christ. And so there are copies back there. Dan, if you just raise your hand there, where Dan Bruce is sitting right there in front of him are some copies of this. And if you haven't read this, I think you'd really enjoy seeing that and, uh, and giving praise to the Lord uh, for what he's done. Let me then... Uh, ask you to please be in prayer for me. Uh, many of you uh, know that Kristen's mom, Sue, is in hospice care. She, she went to Jack Byrne uh, there at, at Dartmouth on Friday, and they don't think that she's going to live uh, even probably past the day. Um, now, we don't have any control of those things, and it, it could be today, it could be next week, we don't know. Um, and several people have asked me, well, gosh, why are you here if, if she's there, uh, and, and why aren't you there? Well, we've, we've got Libby and, and uh, Adrian, her husband, who were there with her, and we've made sure that there's somebody with her. But you have to know my mom, Sue, um, to know that she's from the old Swedish stock of, of uh, you know, work value, and uh, she would tan my hide if I were not here where I'm supposed to be on Sunday morning uh, just to be with her. So uh, I'm trying to honor her. Just last Sunday we were talking about honoring your, your father and mother. So I'm here. Uh, but but uh, who knows? You know, I, you, if you know me, you know I'm a crier. And so I probably will not make it through the service without crying. I'm hoping that I'm not bawling and, and just uh, yeah, incomprehensible. Uh, but, but God is strong in our weakness. Uh, and so I know I've counseled several of you when you've said, Pastor, I can't make it to church because I would just sit there and cry. And I've begged with you, please come. If all you can do is cry because we need people to know that we don't worship God in our strength. We worship him in his weakness because that's all we have. And the, the strength comes from the Holy Spirit. And so I'm praying that he would be mighty this morning in ministering to us. And so please join me in praying for that. So let's prepare our hearts now to worship our great God and King.
Please stand together with me for the call to worship. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Lord God, thank you for your steadfast love, your hesed, loyal love to us throughout the generations, just as you have promised. We thank you and praise you. We ask now that you would receive our praise, Father, because of Christ the Son, and that you, Holy Spirit, would empower us to not only give that praise to the Lord, but to do so joyfully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's join together in singing hymn number 125, Let All Things Now Living. Thank you. You may be seated. God warns us saying that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the scripture also provides the wonderful truth found only in Christ saying if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so then, in humility and faith, let us then confess our sins to God. As we do so, what we're really saying to God is, you're right. I agree. We have sinned, and I have sinned. And so to kind of prime the pump, we have this prayer of Martin Luther, the German reformer, as a, as a way of helping us to focus in on the reality of our sin. And so we pray this not because Martin Luther is so great or because we get extra points for using a reformer in our service, but simply that this was a man that by God's grace understood the depths in which we sin. And so I'd encourage you to pray this with me, and then during the time of silent confession, for you to take maybe just one phrase of this prayer that we're about to pray and focus in on that and ask the Lord to work in helping you to understand your sin and then for him to forgive it. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, merciful and mighty, we unworthy sinners come to you in humble repentance and confess how we have transgressed your holy law. We are guilty of sins of omission and commission, evil thoughts, improper words, and wrong deeds. Forgive our iniquity and shortcomings for the sake of the suffering and death of our Savior Jesus Christ. Let his obedience cover our disobedience. Let his righteousness atone for our unrighteousness. Great God and helper, you alone can forgive. With all our hearts, we thank you for your boundless mercy. Grant us grace with which we might accept your gift of forgiveness with true faith and look upon the word of pardon as a message coming from you, assuring us and consoling our hearts before you. Let us treasure your forgiveness and freely extend it to others by the power of your resurrection. We pray in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Please take a few moments now to pray silently. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Praise be to the Lord. Now for our pastoral prayer, I want us to, to all join in with this, even though I'll be the one praying verbally, I'd encourage you to pray along with me silently and to agree in uh, the Lord, that these are things that we need and are asking him for. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the privilege that you give to us to be able to enter into your presence, to call upon your name, Lord Jesus, to have you not only hear us, but wonder of wonder that you delight in us as your people. Lord, we we come to you as needy people in so many ways. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and to to know, to truly believe that you, Lord God, are enough for us. That whether you answer our prayers to provide work for those who are without a job or housing for those who do not have a place to live or food for the hungry, that, Lord, however you answer these prayers, that you are still good, that you are still praiseworthy. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you and to know that you are indeed everything that we need. Lord, we thank you that we come to you not as one who is high and exalted in such a way that you have never known need or pain or suffering. But Lord Christ, you have suffered for us, that you are one who is well acquainted with sorrow. Lord, we praise you. We ask that you would be particularly with those who need comfort. Lord, we pray for Kristen's mom that in this time of need, you would comfort her. Lord, we, we thank you that by your grace, she knows you and loves you and is trusting in you. I can't wait to be with you. And yet we don't want to let her go. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with our family. And that in our sorrow, Lord, you would give us greater compassion and care for those who likewise are suffering. Not just for our family, but for this church family that you would more and more make us a people that move towards those in grief, that we as a congregation would come alongside those who are grieving, those who are sorrowful, those who are hurting, and bring with us the wonderful balm of your healing and your comfort. Father, we also come to you in a world that has gone mad, where there is war and rumor of war, where there is devastation and desperate hurting. Lord, we pray. We pray for those in Ukraine who are devastated. Lord, that you would be their strength. Lord, we pray for those in Israel and Gaza and all throughout the Middle East, grieving lost loved ones, frightened and enveloped with terror on all sides. Lord, we pray particularly for the peace of Jerusalem. We thank you for your promises to Israel, 
your steadfast and loyal love. And Lord, it's easy. You tell us in your word that the nations would wag their heads at the people of Israel, that they would mock you, Lord God, saying, what kind of God do these people have when they endure such devastation? We know, Lord Christ, that the people walking by you while you hung on the cross jeered and said the same kinds of things. Oh, look, he, he healed others, but he can't save himself. And that, Lord, there are times when it is Good Friday all the year long, when there is such heartache and grief and devastation and Saturday drags on so long. But Lord, we know through your resurrection that the jeering and the mockery and the horror will not, indeed cannot last. Because in your resurrection, Lord Christ, you have conquered death forevermore. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring that resurrection hope to all those who are grieving. Lord, that you would allow them by your grace to know you as the hope in all the world. Father, we lift these things up to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. This time we'll receive the offering as we give joyfully to the Lord. Lord, we lift these gifts and tithes and offerings up to you that you would bless them and multiply them and use them for the glory of your name. Lord Jesus, make yourself known through these gifts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We here at First Congregational Church of Woodstock are congregational in our governance, and yet that doesn't mean that we believe that we alone are the church. 
but we are connected to those who have gone before us. And so we often will use different creeds and confessions. This morning we're using uh, a question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism as a way of expressing what it is we believe. And it's nothing other than the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ is our hope. And so I'd encourage you that if you believe that, if that is what you are convicted and convinced of, that you say so by reciting these things. If that's not where you are this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here, and we'd ask that you simply listen to what it is that followers of Christ have declared, even with their own lives, for centuries. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Indeed, let's thank him as we stand together singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The words and music are in your order of worship. standing for the reading of God's word, this from Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, end quote. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. Praise be to the Lord. Let's sing together, God be merciful to me. You'll find the words and music in your order of worship. Please turn with me to the book of Exodus, 
chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 in, in your pew Bible. Sorry. That begins on page 61. Page 61 in your pew Bible, Exodus chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's the word of the Lord, and we thank God for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the scriptures, that we might know who you are and what you're like, that we might understand who you've made us to be so that we might live our lives in ways that glorify and honor you by faith in what you have revealed. Lord, we pray that you would help us, guide us, strengthen us. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your order of worship to the sermon notes, you'll see that, well, I've read the whole 21 verses here that we're focusing today specifically on this 13th verse. It says very plainly, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. 
And we've been seeing how this, as well as all of these commandments or words from God, are predicated on the reality of God's already rescuing his people out of these very sins, out of our slavery to sin, as that was exemplified in their slavery to Egypt and to Pharaoh, a a king like the other kings of this earth that sought to rule them and gain from them to his advantage, as opposed to God, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, and who reigns, and ser- reigns over us to serve us and to care for us in doing what he has called us to do, namely, to honor his name throughout all of the earth. And so, as we approach these commandments, we see in the text how the people are, the, their whole demeanor is fearful, is is keeping a distance. When these commandments are given for the very purpose that we might draw near to him. Do you, do you hear that contrast of their fear and, and all that, that goes with that rather than a desire for us to, to know God, to, to lean into? And maybe that's where you are this morning, that you hear, oh, he's preaching on the Ten Commandments. Couldn't I have come on a Sunday when they were in Galatians or Ephesians or something and heard about grace? But beloved, don't miss that these words, these commandments are grace. That he is telling us far more than simply that we're not to murder one another. But he's helping us to understand that he alone is the giver of life. And so our view of one another, our view of human life, ought to be one of awe and and wonder. I I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that we have never actually seen a mere mortal in in. All the human beings that we see are made in the image of God. We are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we are those that the angels look at with absolute mystification. What? What? That's, they're amazing, the angels say about human beings. And yet, when we're trying to get home on Route 4 and, and someone's driving 10 minutes under the speed limit and there's no way to get around them, we, we can't stand them. <laughs> oh, oh you've, you've got such important things to do that two more minutes or five more minutes is really that devastating. Why is it? Well, God tells us in his word that it's that way because, as he warned us, sin brings death. Always. And perhaps there's nothing that that reveals that more graphically than shortly after the fall how... Cain and Abel are presented to us in Genesis. 
And they're not simply out doing their own thing. It, it records for us a scene where they as brothers are, are coming to God and giving him sacrifices. They're, they're honoring him. They're worshiping him. They're like upstanding members of First Congregational Church Woodstock. Right? On, on Sunday morning, here in their Sunday best. And yet the two brothers are not in the same place. They're both doing what looks like righteous things. But Abel's sacrifice is, is accepted and Cain's is not. And in just bang, 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 a short progression in the narr uh, narrative, we, we have God warning Cain, warning him to not hate his brother, but to be vigilant. Let's just turn there. Turn with me in, your, in the, the Bible to Genesis chapter 4. This is uh, from verse... 3, Genesis 4, 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Now catch this. He's just murdered his brother. God comes and asks him, where is your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. That phrase, am I my brother's keeper, is, is to show the, the twistedness of, of Cain. Because yes, he is. God has created us to be our brother's keeper. But far from keeping his brother safe, he has murdered his brother. And so in this command, you shall not murder, we find as we have with the other commands that it's, it's about far more than just that particular behavior. But this is a summary of what God wants us to have as a way of everything that we say and do and even think about our brother. And the first time that, that there's a recorded murder, we find all of those aspects in Cain. 
right? That he's angry, that he speaks to his brother in that anger, and that he kills his brother, taking his life wrongly. And so we, we find in that all of these components and that God is dealing with all of that as we see Jesus talking about this same command in the Sermon on the Mount and the way that he deals with all three of those things, our thoughts about one another, our, our words to one another, as well as our actions. So the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is how God prohibits wrongful taking of human life. And we need to unpack that a little bit because you may have noticed even in reading the text, you shall not murder. That's, that's what the ESV, which is the Pew Bible, has. Does, does anybody have a King James version here with you? What is it? Thou shalt not kill. So which is it? Kill or murder? Right? It, there's a difference between those two words, right? And and part of the difficulty in translating it is because there's not range of meaning only in English, but also in all the languages. And so this prohibition against murder, as the text has it here, or kill in some translations, is, is getting at this range of meaning for uh, um, uh, Rishak, the, the Hebrew word for murder that's, that's used here. And it's important that we understand what that meaning is as we seek to follow God's commandments and, and do that, or not do what he prohibits. He's prohibiting here the wrongful or unlawful taking of human life. Risak, this, this Hebrew word, is never used for the killing of livestock or other animals. It's, it's specific to the taking of human life. But think for a moment just in terms of the way that we think of those sorts of things, even in English, right? We have lots of different words like murder, but that's different from manslaughter, and that's different altogether from negligent homicide. While they're, they're different, they all end up with a corpse. But, but what's the intention? What are the, the, the other parameters and the, and the things having to do with that? So the, the reality is, is that the Hebrew term that's used here has a range of meaning that is uh, in, in involving several of these things. And so think of it in this way, in that it's, it is broader than just murder is, but it is, it is uh, more narrow than to kill. So the, word that's, the Hebrew word that's used here would involve murder, and manslaughter and negligent homicide. But it would not involve killing an animal. And it, it wouldn't involve things like self-defense or uh, 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 killing in just war. The, the, the range of meaning there has to do with these sorts of things of the, the unlawful taking of human life. And, and as I've said, the, the command is specific to human life, but it's even more than that in that it's connected with this idea of blood. The scripture tells us again and again that the life is in the blood. We, we hear that in Leviticus chapter 17. It says, if any one of the house of Israel or one of the strangers who sojourn among them 
eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood. So this is a, a legislation in Leviticus having to do with the, the civil law of Israel, those things that are clean and unclean and what you can and cannot eat and those sorts of things. But connected to that is that God has always had his people to when you slaughter an animal for food that you would drain the blood before eating. Why? Well, that's connected with what God is showing. He's, he's putting there in front of us the reality that, that blood and blood guilt are specific things tied to and connected to the spilling or shedding of someone's blood. And that God not only talks about blood and blood guilt, but he also talks about how the blood of his people, the blood of his saints, is particularly significant to them to him as God. In Psalm 72, it says this, For he, that is God, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So all throughout the Old Testament, we find these references to the blood of his people the blood of human beings, and particularly the, the role of the blood in sacrifice, where the, the priest would not only slaughter the animal to be sacrificed and then offer it on the altar, but would often sprinkle the people with that sacrificial animal's blood and sprinkle the, the altar or the, the Holy of Holies with that, that blood. And, and that goes back to the blood covenant of God and his people that, that Exodus 20 is helping us to understand. That, that these words, these 10 words, are not just commands for people to try to be better. They're covenant stipulations. They are the requirements of God's people who have already been made to be God's people. They don't get into the family of God through these commands and, and obedience to them. But once you are members of God's family by faith, then you are to keep these commands as a way of honoring God and demonstrating that he is holy. And so in all of these things, he, he talks about the blood and its particular importance. And, and I have to be frank, a lot of times growing up, reading through the Old Testament, it just seemed like the Old Testament was gory. Have you ever had that feeling? Like there's blood everywhere. I remember in, in our church in, in Maine, we had a, a, a new family coming to the church, and they didn't have any church background. They didn't, they didn't know the Bible stories of the Old Testament or any of those things, and, and they started coming to our church because a friend had invited them. That's, by the way, always a, a good idea, right? You, you invite somebody who's not familiar and, and come with them, and, and, and so they start learning. But I remember this couple coming to me, and like they were almost white as a sheet uh, and, and almost trembling, right? And, and the, the dad was trying to, you know, be, you know, careful, but, but he's like, um, we, we kind of need to talk to you as the pastor. Uh, and I'm so, great, well, how can I help? He said, well, last Sunday after church, we, we were having lunch and they had little kids. And, and so they were talking to their little kids about what they learned in Sunday school. And the lesson that particular Sunday was, was on the Passover. Remember when the people were in Egypt 
And God had brought these ten plagues to reveal that he is the Lord and he's the true king, not Pharaoh, and that God's greater than all the Egyptian gods and all those things and goes through those ten plagues. And the last plague, remember, was the, the death of the firstborn. And, and so God commanded his people to sacrifice a Passover lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and to smear it over the doorposts. And then when the, the angel of death came by, it would pass over those homes in which the blood of the lamb was... Well, many of us know that story so well that you know, we don't even blink. Of Well, yeah, of course, that's Passover. But, but for a family that's not used to any of the Old Testament Bible stories... And they brought their little kids here to, to Sunday school. And they come home. What did you learn in Sunday school? Well, they were killing this lamb. And then, and then they smeared the blood all over the house. So there was blood everywhere. And the neighbor's kids were dying left and right. But, but not the Israelite kids. And so this family's like, whoa, what have we come to, right? Have you ever thought about that? It's, and God doesn't give us those stories, you know, because he was writing them in October and thinking of Halloween, right? These are not gory in, in that sense. The whole point of those things is to reveal to us the true horror. is not ghosts and goblins or other made-up things. The horror that should absolutely terrify us is how sinful we are and how incredibly horrific sin is. And, and that again and again in the scripture, God communicates things like the wages of sin is death. And that the only way to deal with death, the only way to address our utter sinfulness is through death, is through the shedding of blood. But we'll get more to that later. And again, we think of this as, you know, kind of like voodoo, right? It's, it's you know, all this gore and this the sacrifices and and those kinds of things. But, but actually, in our modern world, we've, we've found that there's a whole lot of truth to this that, that they didn't even know yet. How, how many of you have watched shows on, on, uh, on crime uh, things, you know, the, and, they, and they have the, the, uh, the specialist, the, the uh, forensic scientist, right? And what a, what a, how does the forensic scientist find the bad guy? Yeah, the DNA in the blood, right? Have you ever seen one of these things where the, the, the DNA specialist will, will go to the crime scene, right? And they're, and they're showing the crime scene, and you, and you look at it, and it's, you know, there's not the body anymore there. Maybe there's still the, the chalk line. But everything's been, you know, mostly cleaned up. And, and the, the forensic scientist goes in, and they've got a black light. Have you ever seen it? They, they turn on the black light, and boom, like all of a sudden, the room is just alive with, with phosphorescent stuff, right? This is, this is the thing that you never want to do in a public restroom, right, is to turn on a black light. You don't want to know what's there. 
But, but the reality is, is that blood actually testifies. And so these things that we read, like we just read in, in Genesis, about Abel's blood crying out, it, it's, science has actually shown, yeah, that's, the blood testifies. The blood is there to, to say, hey, there was a whole lot of bloodshed in this room. And you can find out who it was. And so God prohibits this wrongful or unlawful taking of human life. And he's, he's established his order in creation to be one in which life begets life. And where we, as his image bearers, have been deputized to kind of be the, the sheriffs to cultivate life, right? Right in the creation mandate, we are to guard and tend the, the garden. We're, we're to, to plow and to, to farm and to, to do things that cultivate life. And that part of that is caring for one another, human lives. Because God alone is the sustainer and giver of life, and, and he's involved and engaged us in that process. So the, the order for us to not murder is not just, well, I've never shot anybody, right? I've wished a lot of people dead, but I've never actually acted on that. Well, no, that's, that's not understanding what he's calling us to. That because he alone is the giver and sustainer of life, that we as his deputies ought to be doing everything in our power to care for and promote human life. It's one of the reasons why the church has historically done things like the, hunger, the food drive. It's, it's not just that I'm not murdering my neighbors, but I'm helping to feed them. I'm, I'm caring for them in the name of Christ. But not only does he prohibit wrongful taking of human life, he also holds us responsible for our neighbors' lives. And again, this is, this is a hard sell in, in New Hampshire and Vermont. Right? I, we're, we're not part of those big cities. We're up here living our own life. Thank you very much. You stay on your land, I'll stay on my land. Everything will be fine. And yet we, we all understand this in a way, and, and, and it squirts out at various different times. I know some of you are dreading the come of, of snow. I've already started seeing pictures on Facebook of, of snow scenes, and several of you have commented like, not yet, don't, don't rush it. We're okay with the fall leaves, but let's not talk about snow yet. But, but one of the things I love about New England is like you, you can have a neighbor that you cuss about all the time, that if you come across on the, on the road and they're in a snow uh, uh, bank, everybody gets out and helps, right? It's like, well, yeah, because if I were in the snow bank, I would want somebody to help me. And, and so there's this kind of camaraderie about those sorts of things. But, but I've also found that, that that camaraderie is very narrowly defined, right? Oh, you're in a snow bank? I'll help you. You want to borrow something? No, no, we're not that close. 
But this way of thinking about our neighbor, about thinking about other human beings, and the way that we speak to them and about them, and the way that we act, God is saying, I am the Lord of those things. You were to obey me not in a, in a narrow bandwidth, but in all of life. And so Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and the zinger was that he was good and a Samaritan because the Jews didn't think any of the Samaritans were good. They, they hated them. And, and so the, the Levite walks by, the rabbi, you know, no, nobody helps him but this hated Samaritan. And, and, and Jesus is turning the knife, is, is, is getting to us to say, if such a one as a Samaritan would do that, how could you as God's people do anything less? And that's not just for them, that's for us now. How could we do any less? God requires us to love one another and to seek one another's welfare. This is what he is getting at. And it's all throughout the law of God, not just that we should not murder, but that we need to be careful in protecting others' lives. Deuteronomy 22 puts it this way. In the midst of all these other things of, of what we're to do and what we're not to do, Deuteronomy 22 says, Now when you build a house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. That is a, a, a railing. Uh, and that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in, in the way even in which you're thinking about your own property and what you do, you're to do that not only with concern for yourself and your own loved ones, but, but in that day and, and culture, the roof was, you know, not like our roofs, the roofs were, were flat and they tended to be like your porch or your balcony. And, and that if you've got a, a porch or balcony, you say, well, I'm smart enough to not, you know, fall off of it. But, but if you have others over, they, they might not know where the limit of, of that is. And, and so it's what John Frame calls this, this theology of carefulness. That, that my view of human life is defined by my knowing who has given that life. And so I don't want to treat with carelessness the things that God has entrusted to us. I saw this one time at a, at a park where there was a, a young family that was playing and, and the, the little kid had come up to his, I'm assuming his dad, and, and the dad just, you know, handed him something. I don't know that it was necessarily very significant or important or whatever he just you know and I was too far to see exactly what it was but I'll never forget the little boy's face right he he received it from his dad and he's like oh I've been given a treasure right? had nothing to do with the thing that it was it was where it came from who it came from and and so he's he's like coddling it right being very careful my dad gave this to me that human being that's sitting next to you. Your dad gave that to you. Your dad gave her or him to you. And your neighbor. And your crummy boss that you can't stand. 
and, and the in-laws that you don't want to see. Your dad gave him to you. That's, that's how we're to see other people. Because they didn't come from anywhere else. They're God's image bearers that he has placed in your life. And so God holds you and us responsible for their lives, for their welfare. We must not be negligent, and we must instead be careful with these lives that God has entrusted to our care. You see, contrary to Cain's response, we are very much our brother's keepers. The Genesis narrative is showing us this exasperated response to show us the heart that's behind murder. And as the Westminster Larger Catechism goes on to, to explain, and I've got that in your notes as well, to, to have you read through that. And it, it talks about both what this command requires and what this command prohibits. And it's connected to all those things of thoughts and words and deeds. And, and so we're not supposed to wrongfully take human life and instead, we're responsible for the care, the nurture, the well-being of, of our neighbors. Well, those are all great to hear, but how? Because the reality is, is that we've all got hearts, apart from Christ, that are just like Cain. And so in the midst of, of all the scriptures, talking about these various different shades of murder, manslaughter, what have you. We find this in the book of Numbers. This is in Numbers chapter 35. It's differentiating some of these finer points of, of homicide and uh, manslaughter and negligent homicide and those kinds of things. And, and there's this provision that God had made for if someone was killed but without intent. It wasn't murder in the first degree, but maybe it was accidental or uh, without malice. And so God sets up this whole elaborate system of what he calls cities of refuge. And just if you're not familiar with this, the idea behind it was that, that if you guys are, are working together and, and you know, your axe head flies off the handle and hits your buddy in, in the head and kills them, Right? that his family would have the responsibility as the instrument of God, as the Lord of justice, to rectify that through your death because you had killed their family member. But God says that if the one who did the killing gets to one of these cities of refuge, that they would be free from that vengeance, that, that the, the family member could not kill them as long as they remained in that city of refuge. 
But let me, let me read some of this and, and give you some of the specifics of what go, is going on. It says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defy the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Okay, no, that's a lot, but let me just focus on a couple of things that are, that are in that. So there's this idea that the blood shed pollutes or defiles the land. And that the whole purpose of the land is for them to dwell with God. And, and so he sets up this, this way of dealing with that through both sacrifices and these cities of, of refuge. But the cities of refuge, you can go to them and, and not be tried and executed, basically, so long as you stay in them, but that God's made provision so that at the death of the high priest, you're then released to be able to return home. And, and then everything's of vengeance is off. It's, it's been resolved with the death of the high priest. And, and a lot of times we read that or we hear that like we do much of the Old Testament, our eyes glaze over and we're like, well, uh, what is that? But, but if you'll actually stop and look at this, there's this beautiful picture of Christ here. That God has made an allowance for the taking of human life through his sacrificial system as, as a way of temporarily dealing with that, but ultimately pointing forward to Christ. And the bottom line is, is that nothing can deal with, the, with a human death except another human death. And, and that that is tied to the priesthood of God's people. Well, then wonder of wonders, what we, what we find in the New Testament is, is the coming of the great high priest. Not a, not a priest in the line of Aaron that just every year at the Day of Atonement would sacrifice and shed blood for the, for the people's sin that, that God might forbear and, and not blot us out. But that that was always pointing towards the high priest. And so Jesus arrives and he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's the, key, the priest, the anointed one, Messiah. And that in going to the cross, he sacrifices himself as the Lamb of God. And it is Jesus' blood that washes us of sin, and Jesus' death as the high priest that releases us from the temporary city of refuge and allows us to go out now in freedom. Christ was murdered in order to give us eternal life. Do you understand that not even God himself could look upon us in our sin and simply say, it's okay, you're forgiven. But the sin of wrongfully taking human life, which we do in thought and word and action, 
can only be forgiven through the shedding of blood. And so Jesus comes as fully God and fully man. He goes in our place. His blood is shed for us. And so Hebrews chapter 12, in talking about that, we had that read earlier in the service. It talks about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember from Genesis? What did, what did the blood of Abel speak? What did it declare? The need for vengeance. The, the injustice that he was killed by his brother who should have been the one in all the world most protecting his life. Who murdered him instead. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. Jesus goes to the cross and his blood speaks a better word. What is it that Jesus' word speaks? What is it that Jesus' blood speaks? It speaks to the Father of mercy. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Justice has already been satisfied in the death of Jesus as our high priest. And so his blood now washes us of all guilt. But he also sets us free. We are no longer confined to a city of refuge. We're no longer hemmed in. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer prisoners. We've been set free. I don't know where each of you are coming from this morning. And remember, Cain and Abel both were worshiping God. So you may have been here worshiping God, or at least having the, the appearance of that, for decades. And have your heart as far from God as Cain's was. And there's only one solution. Jesus and his blood shed for us. And what that means is coming before the Lord and asking him for what he's already given you. To receive him as Savior and then to follow him as Lord. You might just, in the quiet of your own heart and mind right now, simply say to God, God, I confess I don't love others the way that I'm supposed to. I don't keep your law. But in your word, you say that Jesus has kept it for me and died for the sin for which I deserve death. Would you forgive me? And then follow him. Obey him by faith. You say, Pastor, I've done that. I may have done that a dozen times through the years. Not sure if the first one took. You don't get closer by obeying better. You get closer by trusting Christ for what he's done. That when he died and said it is finished, it's done. 
So why are you living in a way as if you're constrained like those living in a city of refuge? Walk out in the freedom of Christ to love your neighbor, to care for them, and tell them about Christ. How do we keep God's command? We love because he first loved us. We do what God requires. We refrain from what God forbids by faith. There's more that I could say. Let me just encourage you to use the Taken Gathered Worship Home, particularly this week. I have you looking at Matthew chapter 5 and 18. When you're struggling with a neighbor that you're at cross purposes about, and you say, which one of us is supposed to take the first move? We just, you know, do a, do a reveal here. You are. Chapter 5 says, if you're in the wrong, you go. Chapter 18 says, if they're in the wrong, you go. There's none of this. Well, if they come and, and ask for forgiveness, then I'll give it to them. Because if Jesus is treated that way, we would never be forgiven. He came to us. He died for us. He forgave us before we asked for it. So you too go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving and sustaining human life. Lord, we wouldn't have it without you. And yet we live our lives so much in total disdain for what you have commanded us to do. And so we pray that you would forgive us, that you would change us and transform us and more and more allow us as a congregation to be those who are loving our neighbors, protecting their lives rather than cursing them. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing hymn number 585, Take My Life and Let It Be.
sing that, take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. It's easy to say that. But what we're learning in the ten words is, is that the way that we demonstrate that is through obedience. It's as simple as what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Let us, by God's grace, do that. And now peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Amen and amen. Thank you. Be seated for just a moment. Let me just encourage you, if you have even just one little wisp of uncertainty in terms of where you stand with Christ, don't wait another moment. I'd love to have you come and talk with me or one of the elders about what it means to trust Christ in the ways that we've just talked about. He is good. Run to him. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.